Greetings. This is your Bible teacher coming to you from my home office and welcoming most of you who are members ongoing of the class that normally meets on Thursday nights at St. Teresa. If you're not, welcome as well uh, to the podcast today. The fourth lecture of the spring will be moving into the heart of the book of Revelation, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But before we do, we always begin with a prayer, and today would be no exception. So, gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, as I invite you to find your way to Revelation chapter 5, let me say that uh, my spirits are buoyed by the idea that our triple-digit temperatures will uh, wreak havoc on the virus, and I am keeping my uh, finger on the pulse of the developments in the state. We'll see what happens in regard to reopening the churches, and after that, we'll try to see if we can come back together on those regular Thursday nights. I know the space that we meet in would provide ample opportunity for what I'm sure will be, at least for a time, a requirement of significant social distancing. But I'll keep you informed as we move forward. Until then, I'm going to continue to make these 45-minute or so lectures available online. And uh, please feel free to share this access point at anchor.fm, if that's where you're accessing uh, these podcasts, uh, so that others can have advantage in this time of having nothing uh, to do except continue our biblical education. So having said that, we're going to return now to the heart of the book of Revelation. Remember, the Revelation itself is in three parts. The first three chapters were dedicated to ecclesial issues in the churches that John the Apostle is in charge of. He's the presbyter, he's the bishop, he's the archbishop of churches in close proximity to Ephesus. And he'd been commissioned by the Lord to write to seven of those churches messages that were to be delivered to the angels of those churches, the pastors. Those letters were to be read and the teaching then appropriated. We completed that journey last week. We then make a transition into the second part of the book of Revelation in chapter 4. Remember last week, after this, chapter 4, verse 1, having written the seven letters, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here now, and I will show you what must take place after this. That is, what's coming next. Remember, John is incarcerated on the island penal colony called Potmos, probably around the year 64 or 65 
AD, as I have always maintained, before the events that will lead to the catastrophic destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans takes place. John is well aware that Jesus, for instance, in Mark chapter 13 and in Matthew chapter 24, spoke boldly and predictively about the destruction of the temple, resulting in a time period lasting a generation. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. Jesus speaks these warnings specifically in for instance, Matthew chapter 24, going through the details that will lead up to the eventuality of the destruction of the temple, that one stone left upon another, and says that this will happen within that time period, within the next 40 years. Jesus teaches on the Temple Mount in 32 AD, and all of the events that he predicts come to pass by 72 AD. The temple is destroyed and it will never be rebuilt again. John, in 64 or 65 AD, is well aware that that prophetic clock is ticking down. So the chapters we will now study for the next few weeks, chapters 4 through 19, deal with that same prophetic expectation of the eventual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem at the hand of specifically of imperial Rome. And then we have the third part of Revelation, which is chapters 20, 21, and 22, which we'll see when we arrive there, have not yet come to pass. We're still waiting for those chapters, prophetic fulfillments, to be fulfilled at some point in the future. So let's keep that in mind. I also remind you that we'll be making occasional journeys back to the Hebrew Bible in order to appropriate images that are important for our understanding of the book of Revelation. Today, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 12, briefly, and also Ezekiel chapter 9. We'll need to remember some passages in the prophetic texts mentioned, Daniel and Ezekiel respectively, in order to control images that are being suggested in Revelation chapters 5, 6, and 7. Finally, remember at the end of class last week that when John arrives in heaven as part of his vision, remember this is a vision given to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this, he saw, as Ezekiel had seen in Ezekiel chapter 1, the same four living creatures. Remember in verse 6, they were covered with eyes in front and back, which suggests in this kind of literature that they are wisdom figures, a multiplicity of eyes. They're wise beyond imagination. One appeared like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. That's just what they looked like. More important was what they were saying. And remember in verse 8, day and night, they never stop crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And the 24 elders on 24 thrones always respond to that continual chorus of praise, 
by responding in verse 11 at the end of chapter 4. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now that sets the stage for what comes next. In chapter 5, in the vision, John says, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the right hand of God, a scroll with writing on both sides, and it was sealed with seven seals. The last time we had encountered a scroll that was sealed with seven seals had to do with Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, the prophet Daniel has yet another vision. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, the chapter opens, Michael, one of the named archangels, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such has been not happened from the beginning of the nations until then, but at that time your people, meaning the Jews, everyone whose name is found written in the book of life will be delivered, and multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge, but that scroll is not going to be opened. It's not going to be unsealed. Its contents are not going to be revealed until a later date. Certainly not to you, Daniel. So when John in his vision, sees God holding a scroll that has seven seals, sealing it shut. The Jewish mind of the time would obviously go back to Daniel chapter 12, because Daniel is told by the prophet, no, I'm sorry, by the archangel Michael in verse 1, there will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Now, we fast forward to the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus repeats that phrase when he's speaking about the certainty of the destruction of the temple. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, picking up in verse 15, when you see standing in the holy place, the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, mentioned there first, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, so they will never encounter the terrors that are going to befall the temple. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers because they will be required to flee as well. And pray that your flight may not take place in winter, very difficult to travel in winter, or on the Sabbath. You may find yourself locked within the closed gates of the city and there will be no opportunity to exit. For then, and here it is, in verse 21, there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Can you hear the echoes of Daniel 
chapter 12 in that teaching of Jesus. Jesus is teaching about the certainty of the destruction of the temple. The archangel Michael was preparing Daniel to know that same reality, but he wasn't ready to fully understand it. So those words were symbolically written on a scroll, and the scroll was sealed. Now that scroll is going to be opened or revealed in chapter 5. So we come back then to chapter 5. And in verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. Why are people under the earth? Well, they've died, righteous men and women, and they are awaiting uh, the uh, announcement uh, that they are to be received into heaven. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John says in the vision, he remembers that I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Who's that? Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's the root of David? That's Jesus. And how has he triumphed? He has conquered death. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, bearing on its body marks of crucifixion. John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven is a number in the Bible, as you know, that we always associate with God. It's God's number. That's why we'll see later in future lectures that the beast's number is 666, rather Solomonic, trying to attain divinity by coming as close to seven as possible, but always falling short. Horns in apocalyptic literature are not to be meant literally, but rather symbolically as symbols of power, right? Uh, the Roman Empire will be presented in later lectures as a beast with ten horns. Rome controlled the world at that time through agencies that governed over ten provinces. Additionally, there were ten successive Caesars. Each Caesar represented a horn or a source of power. Think of a bighorn sheep or the antlers on a moose or a bull elk, symbolic of their strength and vitality, right? And eyes. Seven eyes, seven horns, the number we associate with God. Eyes speak of, in apocalyptic literature, wisdom. So this figure, Jesus, is all-powerful and all-knowing. He came, in verse 7, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, watch this now, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, would this suggest that those who have been saved by grace are only males and therefore could serve as priests because the priesthood was a ecclesial office reserved for the male of the two genders. No. Remember, the role of the priest is what is emphasized here. And the role of a biblical priest is to listen to the people and offer their intercession to the Lord on their behalf. In the Roman Catholic Mass, before the first reading, there is a prayer called the Collect. And in that prayer, the presider, the priest, offers opportunity for people to collect their prayer intention and then present that prayer intention of the congregation to the Lord. Often, that will be the image of incense rising to the Lord, symbolic of our prayer rising to the Lord. Our prayer is not literally in the incense, but rather is evocatively imaged in the incense rising into the heavens. And so again, I come back then to verse 8. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Not literally, but representing the prayers of the saints rising into heaven. And in verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That is, believers are made priests or intercessors. That's our role, to pray for the salvation of the world. In verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand, too many to even guess estimate, They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. They take their clue and their key from the four wisdom figures that are spinning about, the 24 elders who are singing God's praises. The angels then pick up that chorus. And when I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, in verse 13, and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them, they were singing to him who sits on the throne, God, and to the Lamb, Jesus, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen, which means yes. And the elders fell down and worshiped. John is beside himself in these opening moments of this Vision Again, the scroll, which represents the prophecy that predicts the destruction of the temple, will soon be open, right? The, the prophetic clock is ticking down. Rome is on the way. These are all things in the mind of the readers of this text in the first century church of John. Now, John says, I watched in chapter 6 as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Pause. Seven seals will be followed by seven trumpets, which will be followed by seven bowls. Now, these are not to be understood chronologically. It's not as if seven events of the seven seals are going to take place, and then seven more events depicted by the seven trumpets are going to take place, and then 
Still, seven additional events will take place depicted by the appearance of seven bulls. 21 separate chronological events coursing themselves over a period of time. No, that's not the way that apocalyptic literature works. Apocalyptic literature works on a principle of uh, repetition. That is recapitulation. And so what we'll see, and I'll give a summary now, and then we'll look at the details as we move through chapters 6 and 7, is that the seven seals display one chronologically after the other individual events that will lead to complete and utter prophetic fulfillment and victory, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, from the perspective of the victor, right? And to the victor go the spoils. And so that's why the vision of the victor is first. After we have walked through the seven seals, we'll then walk through the same series of historical and chronicled events of history from the perspective of the vanquished. That is, of those who faced the wrath of the victor. And their experience is much different, right? as vanquished than of the victor. And so we'll be looking at those events of the trumpet, which announce military engagements and the horrors that are the result of that in the seven trumpets. And then the seven bowls are the same seven events of the trumpets and before them of the seals from the perspective of those who have fled the confrontation in advance of the arrival of Roman forces to finally lay siege to the city. Remember Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, I just read it to you, Jesus issues a clarion warning to his disciples. I'll remind you of it again. When you see standing in the holy place, the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, Roman armies preparing to lay siege to Jerusalem. In verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, not into the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is going to be uh, compromised and destroyed, the temple dismantled. Let no one on the roof of his house go down. Let no one in his field go back again. There will be great distress, as I read earlier, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. In verse 23, if at that time, Jesus warns 40 years before these events take place, anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it, right? Know that when you see these forces coming toward Jerusalem, flee to the mountains, and the Christians do. The Christians flee not only to the mountains, but to mountains on the eastern side of the Jordan River to a biblical city in modern-day Jordan that was called then Pella. And there they ride out the wrath of the Romans. And so when we look at the seven bowls, it will be almost emblematic of echoes that make their way across that vast geographic expanse and inform then the Christians that they made the right choice. Although Jerusalem is compromised, and her temple was destroyed, not a single Christian, to the knowledge of the historians of the day, Flavius Josephus, died as a result of the advancing Roman 
armies, right? They heeded the warning of Jesus and fled in advance of the arrival of the forces of Titus commanding the 12th Roman legion. All right, coming back then to the scroll and its seals. These seals are going to represent a military perspective of victory from the perspective of the victor, not the vanquished, right? Not the vanquished, but the victor. So I watched as a lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Later, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, this same white horse is going to reappear, its rider as well, and the rider will be identified as Jesus, right? Leading the prophetic fulfillment of his word spoken 40 years earlier. Then the lamb opened a second seal in verse 3, and I heard the second living creature say, come, and then another horse came out. Now watch, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. This rider represents war, right? Because again, armies coming to lay siege are going to kill along their way to their eventual destination and then engage militarily the defensive uh, intents of the military that would try to dispel the Romans from setting up their siege, and so war will be the result. Then the Lamb opened the third seal in verse 5, and I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands that you would use to weigh in a marketplace. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a day's wage, and three quarts of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This black horse represents famine, right? Because once an army lays siege and seals off the city, the gates are closed, and military preparations take place to advance against the city, food is sold at a premium because it quickly runs out. And so you have then, rather than a quart of wheat for a shekel, a quart of wheat costing a day's wages and three quarts of the simple grain barley, as well the equivalent of a day's wage. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, this was something that was not heeded by those locked in by the Romans because infighting among various Jewish groups led to the damage of oil and wine stores. Grains were burned. Water was poisoned. There was a hatred that the Jews still to this day say was without cause among Jews within the city as Rome laid siege outside. But again, war, you secure the city, you seal its gates, always as you lay siege, will lead eventually to famine. And that is the image of the black horse. In verse 7, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind him. Remember in the Greek 
or Greco-Roman world of the time, Hades was the god of the dead. And that's why Hades became, in Greek translations, the Greek word that translated the biblical word Sheol, which was the place of shadows where those who died in righteousness awaited for their liberation from the bosom of Abraham. In later translations, from Greek into English, Hades becomes hell. And that's why we have in our English translations of the creed, Jesus suffered, died, and was buried, and descended into hell. He didn't descend into hell. He descended into Hades, which was the realm of the dead, which the Jews understood to be Sheol, to tell the righteous men and women who had been awaiting opportunity to return to Eden, the the blocked gates and the fiery cherubim have stood down, and they can now enter into their rest. And so, the pale horse and its rider named Death follow war and famine, plague, right? And, and that's always a result of armies laying siege to induce famine that will lead to disease and then death, compromising the ability of people in the city besieged to defend themselves. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth. This is verse 8. Uh, to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Sword, famine, and plague. The three elements, right, of laying siege. And the Romans, on their way to lay siege to Jerusalem, basically traversed a fourth of the earth at that time, a fourth of the Roman Empire. The earth can only be as expansive as you understand it to be. And 2,000 years ago, there was no awareness that there was a continent known as Australia or Antarctica or knew anything about North and Central and South America. But they did know about the Roman Empire and its vast expanse. And that was the earth of that day. And Rome, in point of fact, marshaled forces from basically 25% of that controlled territory to bear down upon Jerusalem. In verse 9, he opened then the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar in heaven the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Martyrs and their testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? We died proclaiming you to others. We were put to death because of our evangelistic efforts. And because they were crying out, each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed. There were still those who would be martyred. And these souls under the altar are not shuffled into that location. This is the position of unbelievable honor. They're under the altar of God. Remember the days long past now when uh, life teen was moving so quickly and wonderfully in so many of our parishes. And one of the points of uh, reference was that we would invite the teens around the 
altar at the moments before and after the consecration of the bread and the wine. It was such a powerful, evocative image to see the teens sort of approach the altar. We were honoring them by inviting them as close as possible to this moment of sacred transubstantiation. That's the idea. If these souls who had been slain because of the word of God are under the altar, they're there for a reason, they're honored, and they cry out, how long, how long, O Lord, and their cry is not unheeded. It's heard, and the answer is just a little while longer, and until then, they're given a white robe. They're Blood-stained clothes have been refreshed. White is the symbol of baptism, a symbol of new life. And then I watched in verse 12, as he opened the sixth seal. And when he did, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, the black goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. Stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. In apocalyptic literature, stars represent rulers. And when a star falls from the sky, it is emblematic of a ruler falling from a point of ecclesial or political power. Think about the infancy narrative. We have wise men from the east who witness a star rising in the heavens systematically over a period of time. And that star rises in a constellation that they have always associated with the Jews, the constellation of Leo, the Lion of Judah, the Jews. And they interpret the meaning of the appearance of that star rising as a prophetic announcement that a new ruler has been born. That's why they're motivated to come to Herod and ask about his eventual successor. Surprising Herod, because he didn't understand what they were talking about. There's the opposite image. A star rising would be emblematic of a new ruler appearing. Stars falling from the sky is not meant to be understood literally, but rather figuratively. And we'll talk more about that because Rome will have a major star fall from the sky in the personage of Nero in 66 or so AD, who will commit suicide, a star falling from the sky, which will lead to an emboldened Jewish state declaring war on Rome at that time. Now, after that sixth seal, was opened and and everything now begins to play itself out in the events that will lead up to and will result in the destruction of Jerusalem and the desecration and dismantling of the temple. Well, the kings of the earth, in verse 15, and the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty and every slave and every free man hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Because when the Romans came, there was no escaping a possibility of a fate which would lead to horrific death. And that's why everyone fled in advance because the Romans were hell-bent on complete and total annihilation of the state of modern Israel geographically, but of Judah and Jerusalem and its temple 2,000 years ago. They called on the mountains and the rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? Rome is marching under the emblem of the eagle, a desecrating image, with the twelfth Roman legion at the command of Titus, who is himself going to be identified as the beast. He's an agent of God's enemy, the devil. Wow. Now, how about that for two chapters, five and six? And we're just getting started. In chapter seven, it's not a new chapter. It's the same vision that continues. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Again, in the vision, each holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. They're holding back the finality of the wrath that is going to come at the hand of Titus' general and the Roman legion. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east. He had the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had given who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, not yet. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now this is an exponentially large number. It's 12 squared times 10 cubed. It's not meant to be taken Literally, no matter what the Jehovah's Witnesses try to convince you of otherwise. This is a large number, a round number, and 12,000 are sealed from each of the 12 tribes. Go with me now back to Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, before the departure of the Spirit of God from the temple in advance of the arrival of Babylonians who will surround Jerusalem, lay siege to the city, breach her defenses, and destroy her temple in 586. Before any of that happens in Ezekiel chapter 9, the prophet has a vision. And here's the vision in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 3 and following. The glory of the Lord God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, that is from the Ark of the Covenant, where it had been, and it moved to the threshold of the temple. It's about to leave through the door, the threshold. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit, a census worker, effectively at his side, and said, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it, right? Mark those who are righteous for salvation. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city, and then, in verse 5, kill without showing pity or compassion. Let Babylonians do what Babylonians do, slaughter old men, young men, maidens, women, and children, but do not touch anyone who has this mark. Begin with my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Each of them was marked with a towel, a sign of a T on their forehead. And they didn't suffer during the Babylonian onslaught. That's the image that we return to then in Revelation chapter 7. Again, from 
Ezekiel chapter 9, before the Babylonians arrive, mark those who are filled with faith. In Revelation chapter 7, before the Romans arrive, mark those, again, who are men and women of faith, and you can't harm anything until that work is done. So that work is done. And then in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7, After this I looked, and there before me, in addition to that vast number of Jewish men and women who were marked with the sign of God, a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, they were standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Who are they? They're not marked, so they're not members of the faith community we call Israel. They're Gentiles. They're Gentiles who have been saved by grace, by their good works. A great multitude that no one could count from every, and we'd read, other nation, other tribe, other people, and other language. And they were wearing white robes. They were in. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. They had made it. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And when they heard the Gentiles singing the praises of God, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor, power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now one of the elders asked me, John says, he remembers, these in the white robes, who do you think they are? And where did they come from? Well, we have a clue in John chapter 10. I was just teaching John chapter 10 last night, so I'm reminded of this. In John chapter 10, Jesus speaks about these men and women. After, in John chapter 10, verse 16, speaking about his role as being the good shepherd, in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep his fellow Israelites, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And then in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this pen, which would mean a reference to the Gentiles. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus spoke about those men and women, Gentiles, you and I, who would respond to the message of salvation. So back to Revelation chapter 7, one of the elders asked me, John says in the vision, who do you think these people are in the white robes? Where did they come from? And I answered, effectively, I don't know, but you do, sir. And he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the land. Now they weren't raptured out, They died their way out. They were martyred out of that tribulation. There's no teaching in the Bible about being delivered from tribulation. Jesus suffered and died. We have to follow his example. Uh, Eleven of the twelve apostles died martyrs' deaths. None of them delivered from suffering. They died their way out, and like the souls of the martyred under the altar of the Lord, they were given white robes. They have washed their robes and made them white. They had formerly been stained by blood. And they are before, in verse 
15, the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. He will spread his tent over them. The Feast of Tabernacles, which for a Jewish person of faith is how we'll live out our days in eternity in those makeshift shelters wherein God provided for all of our necessary needs. That's why these multitudes in verse 9 were wearing white robes and holding palm branches, right? Because those are emblematic of what was used in constructive uh, proceedings to build those makeshift lean-tos called tabernacles or booths. They will never again hunger. Never again will they thirst. That's how God will provide for them for eternity as he had for the Jewish faith community during their time of wilderness wandering. The sun will not beat upon them because they'll have a roof over their head nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then, and this brings us to the end of the lecture, he opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now we're going to find out what happens during that half an hour and beyond when we return to the book of Revelation next week. But that's all I have time to be able to do for you today. I'll never tire of reminding you of what a great student you are. Please remember me in your prayers as I remember you in mine. God bless, and until next week, have a wonderful, wonderful day.